Okay, today's reading is from two different parts of the Bible, uh, two different books. Um, Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3, and 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. So the pages in the uh, Church Bible, I believe, are 9 and 245. Okay, Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now in 2 Samuel 7, starting about halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay. In my misspent youth, which has continued up until today, um, I love reading and um, I love epic fantasy. Now, does anyone read epic fantasy? Okay, there's a few. Michelle, totally, totally predictable. Yes, Rachel, I've seen your bookcase. Uh, One of my favourite books, a series of books that got me started was The Belgariad. And um, what is, what is true with almost every single epic fantasy book that you can read is that there is a terrifying threat. There is this enemy that is going to overwhelm everything and the people are helpless before it. They are longing, they are hoping for a saviour. And so often in epic fantasy, the saviour is born in humble circumstances maybe an unknown peasant who is completely ignorant of their incredible prophesied destiny. Are you getting excited? Okay. And then about halfway through book three, it is revealed that the peasant is actually the promised king who is going to slay the enemy and rule over the kingdom with justice and righteousness. And everyone's happy and lives happily ever after. Um, There are obviously variations on that plot line, but that's pretty much... Most of the books you'll find in uh, epic fantasy, so you don't need to read them. Uh, They're all there. You know what happens. You know what happens. Now, we are turning not to an epic fantasy, but to an epic fact today. We're going to start looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And in this series, we're looking at the first four chapters. And over the next couple of years, we're going to look at the 28 chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And there are many things that Matthew, epic fact, has in common with the epic fantasy genre. There is a terrible threat. There is a hero, a saviour that is born in obscurity and poverty. 
But there it probably ends. Because Matthew, unlike epic fantasy, lets the cat out of the bag in almost the first few words of his book. For all who have eyes to see, they can see the answer there before them. We're going to turn now to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to spend today looking at verses 1 to 17. It will become apparent why we didn't ask Diana to read these as I read them for you now. Matthew writes, this is the genealogy, literally this is the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, if you're going to write a bestseller, is that the way you'd start? So many times, I think Christians get to the genealogies. There's two of them when Jesus is concerned uh, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, and they just jump over them, don't they? Or you read them out of duty. And you kind of go, I've got no idea who any of these people are. Or Abraham, I've heard of him. David, yeah, maybe Solomon. Other than that, we kind of struggle, don't we? We've got to actually stop and actually say, this is actually God's word to us. And God is communicating to us through this list of names. And like I'd like to suggest, I'd suggested to you, I actually believe that in this list of names, Matthew has actually given us the key to understand Jesus. In case you missed it, we're going to spend some time now and unpack it. But as we get into it, I thought we'd answer just a few questions that come up first of all, so they don't distract you. Having said that, one of my answers distracted one of the people at the nine o'clock service for most of my sermon. So I'll flag that for you and get that out of your system as well. If you've ever compared Matthew's genealogy to Luke, you know that they're, they're actually different. And so we've got to kind of go, who got it right and who got it wrong? Or could they both be right? Now, as I read that for you, I flagged for you at the start that Matthew literally writes 
This is the genesis of Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And the word that we translate the father of, or if you've got a King James version, you know, begat. So that was really cool. You know, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, etc., etc., etc. It sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, all that begetting. Uh, it doesn't actually necessarily mean biological descent. And the best explanation I found for this is that we should be thinking in Matthew's gospel particularly, that what Matthew is presenting to us is a lineage of role, a line of ascent to the throne. So what he's talking about is like here with Queen Elizabeth, we kind of say who's next in line, who's next in line, and if this person dies, it goes over to that person over there, and it jumps from families to family. Luke is probably more likely to be a biological descent this father, this father, this father, this father. And in this case, what Matthew is doing is drawing our attention to the lineage, the royal prerogative of Jesus, a line of succession. But again, you'd kind of think 17 verses. Why would you bother? It's just weird. It's there. Like, we don't care about it so much, but in those days, in Jesus' contemporaries, they were really hung up on which family you came from. Now, stop looking at that. That's got Queen Elizabeth. That is not what we're talking about. You're trying to work out where, where this person, I've never even heard of. Who's this number 10? Where does she fit? No, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm going I'm to take that off because I'm going to go back to the cat in the bag, Okay. In Jesus' day, and we've actually, you've actually got examples of it in the gospel. A couple of times you meet people and they have a strange little prefix in the front of their name. So do you remember the blind man who Jesus heals in, uh, I think it's Mark 10? His name is Bartimaeus. Okay. You remember the thief, the insurrectionist that gets off when Jesus is convicted? What's his name? Bar-Abbas. Bartimaeus. If I was to introduce myself to you in those days, I would actually introduce myself, I could introduce myself as Bar Bruce. It actually literally means son of Bruce. And Daniel nods, and he would be Daniel Bar Cameron. Uh, whose parent, where you belonged, was actually really important. And what, what is even more important, when you're establishing heirs to the throne, it is really important, isn't it? So you go back now, people suss out their genealogies and they find out that I was, you know, related to Charlemagne or something like that. Uh, so when, I, when the Holy Roman Empire is looking for a new emperor, I should be considered. Well, I would actually need to consider, I'd need to be uh, able to prove that to be considered for the role. You could claim that you were connected to the British royal family, but if you wanted to inherit the throne, you'd have to have some fairly accurate documentation. Yes? And so what Matthew is giving us here is the fact that Jesus is the heir to the throne of David. But he also gives us the context. He gives us clues in which to actually see Jesus. I don't know if you've... Um, I do this all the time. You go in, you pick up the remote, 
you flick on the TV and you start watching a movie about halfway through. Does anyone do that? Um, and then you kind of work out, you're trying to work out, is this the goodie? Is this the, how does that fit? Or imagine sort of turning up to the theatre late and what you're trying to find out is, who are the good, yes, it's Lamies, I know. I should have picked something that none of you knew. Um, what's happening? You know, why are they standing up there? You know, what's that got to do with anything? And you can kind of piece it together. What Matthew gives us in the genealogy is a number of key touchstones from the Old Testament, which really are like Acts 1 to 3, where Jesus comes in at Act 4. And if you just have Act 4, you kind of struggle to make sense of Jesus. But what Matthew gives us in the genealogy is a really point summary of the entire Old Testament. So you can read through 39 books of the Bible or 17 verses of Matthew. Matthew gives us the key bits to understand Jesus. Now, the other question that I know you're burning to have answered, this is the question I asked the staff on Monday. They all looked at me and went, I don't know. What's the deal with 14? Anyone work that one out? There's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from exile to Jesus. What's with 14? Half of seven. Double seven. Yeah, yeah, it's also half of 28. Um, or if you times it by 27, it becomes something. No, I, I don't know. Why 14? I want to give you a reason that actually makes sense, and then I'm going to try and tell you why 14. By actually massaging the genealogy, which is what he's done, because there are more people in the gaps that he's left out, he gives us turning point, 14 generations, David, big turning point. 14 generations, exile, big turning point. 14 generations, Jesus, what are we expecting? Big turning point. He gives us a pattern. Abraham, gap. David, gap. Exile, gap. Jesus, we're waiting for something massive to happen in the history of God's people. But why 14? This is where the people got distracted. So just listen or ignore this. That is the Hebrew characters for David. Okay? DVD. Obvious, isn't it? Okay? If you attach numbers to those letters, and the Jews did this, four and six, you add it all together, what do you get? Fourteen. Okay? Is that amazing? I don't know. That's the only explanation that I've actually found that makes any sense as to why Matthew picked 14. But you could have picked 15. He could have picked 13. You're all nodding, you're all shaking your head, doesn't matter. Okay, let's just ignore that. I never said it. But here we are introduced to Jesus, who is, in verse 1, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And Diana read for us two great prophecies that are attached to each of those two people. When Jesus is introduced as the son of Abraham, any Old Testament-loving Jew and any biblically literate Christian starts to think, Abraham, God made promises to Abraham. He made promises in Genesis chapter 12 that should have appeared up there. What he says is this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's Genesis chapter 12. What's happened so far up to that point in biblical history? Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, people rebel. People reject God. People try to run their lives their own way and so come under God's just judgment. God curses humanity. Then what happens? We see that curse unfold in the lives of people. Cain and Abel, the flood, Babel, each of them coming under the judgment of God. If there is going to be a rescue for these people, it actually has to come from outside. And in chapter 12, God brings blessing to answer the curse of 1 to 11. God brings his rescue mission to rescue humanity from their own rejection of him. And he promises to bless the nations. Look there in verse 3. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. And what Matthew is saying to us is that Jesus, the son of Abraham, is the heir to that promise. And because of that 14, 14, 14, we're expecting that something climactic is going to happen. This is a big moment. Jesus is going to bring blessing to the nations. But not just son of Abraham, he's also the son of David. David, the great king, the shepherd who was anointed by Samuel and brought in out of the field to rule over God's people. The man described as a king after God's own heart. David, David who wanted to build a temple for God, but Nathan the prophet received a word from the Lord that said no, but made a promise to David. The promise said, when your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors and I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. What we see is that in the first instance, God did raise up someone from David's own offspring. He raised up Solomon and Solomon built the temple. But as we start to see the history of Israel unfold and the kings go from pretty good to pretty appalling, we realize that there has to be something more. Every now and again, there's glimpses of light. You come across guys like Hezekiah or Josiah, great reformers. But a generation or two later, Israel is back doing what they have always done. And the prophets pick up. They pick up that there has to be something more. And if you were in carols last night, Terry uh, Osmond got up and declared the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years BC. He says, for us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A promised king. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. An eternal kingdom ruled over by David's son. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The Israelites, they knew that God was going to send a king. They had seen the decline of Israel to the point where you get to the end of the second 14 and you get to exile. Israel going off into slavery in Babylon. But they are looking for God to bring an eternal kingdom with an eternal king who will be God with us. And that king would also be bringing blessing to the nations. Son of David, son of Abraham. The exile reminds us that that was never going to come through Israel's own strength. Even at its best, look there at verse, uh, verse second half of verse 6. As the next lot of 14 starting, what's he say? David was the father of Solomon. And then like that really unfortunate friend or relative that brings up the things that you really want to forget. You know those people? They kind of, oh, do you remember the time when? And you kind of, for Israel, this was one of these moments. And Matthew just records it just nicely in there in a way that really rubs salt into the wound, can I say. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oops. He could have said, whose mother had been Bathsheba, and then we would have just thought adultery. But by reminding us of Uriah, we know that David murdered him too. David, the man after God's own heart, adulterer, murderer. And then you go down the list and it gets even worse. You get this little glimpse of blessing under David and Solomon and a few other little highlights. And after 400 years, you get the exile because it is trashed. You get kings like Manasseh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He worshipped the stars and the sun and the moon in the temple of God that Solomon had built. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Manasseh led them, that's Israel, astray, so that they did more evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Moreover, Manasseh had also shed so much blood that he filled, innocent blood, that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. What a lovely picture, hey? If Israel is going to have a hope, if these promises of blessing and eternal rule are going to come, they are going to come from God's hand alone. And what this genealogy is telling us is this is Jesus, the heir to these promises. This is Jesus, the one who will bring blessing to the nations, the one who will reign eternally over God's kingdom. What else can we learn? We
we can learn some lessons from these names. Let me give you a few. We have a God who keeps his promises. We have a God who is faithful. But he doesn't always do it in our timing. He made the promises to Abraham somewhere between probably 1600 and 2000 BC. David, about 1000 BC. Isaiah 9, we reckon, was written somewhere around 720 BC. For to us, a child is born. That's waiting for Christmas, isn't it? 720 years. Is it Christmas yet, Mum? Is it Christmas yet, Dad? I'll just wait another couple of centuries. It'll be there soon. But God did bring his promises to fruition. He didn't keep them in the way that Israel expected. He didn't keep them in the time that Israel expected. But he did keep them. Do we look at God's promises like that? Do we know that our God is faithful and he has proved it again and again and again? He doesn't always keep his promises in the way that we want him to. He doesn't always keep them in the timing that we have. I was reminded as Simon was leading us through and reminded us that Christians for 2,000 years had been saying the Apostles' Creed or thereabouts. That's a long time waiting for Jesus to come back. But brothers and sisters, as he came the first time, he will come the second time. Our God can be trusted. Not only that, we have a God who is sovereign over sin. Do you ever think that somehow you've stuffed up so badly that God couldn't possibly use you? That you're so flawed so broken. He only uses good people, only uses whole people, only uses these great heroes of the faith. Do you know the story of Tamar? Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law who entrapped him, you could argue somewhat justified, but pregnant to her father-in-law, recorded for us in the genealogy of the Messiah. Incest. We've already heard about David and Uriah's wife, murder, adultery. We've read Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. God is sovereign over human sin. Not even Manasseh can stand in the way of God bringing his purposes to bear. God fulfills his promises and he uses flawed, broken, rebellious people to do it. Not even at our worst are we outside of God's sovereign hand. What else do we learn? God is the God of the little person, the outsider, the unknown. Verse 14, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud. Great ones, aren't they? 
Who on earth are these people? No idea. These are just names in history. Brothers and sisters, most of us are just names in history. Think back of your great-grandparents. Some of you may have actually known them. I have a name, George. I don't know the first thing about him, but God did. And God knew Azor, and God knew Elihud, and God knew Achim, and all the others. And God knows us. And God knows those who are outside. He mentions the women, doesn't he? Matthew four times plus Mary brings women into the genealogy against all the custom of the day. Previously, it would have been just been list all the blokes. That's what you need. And he just brings in the women to make a really powerful point. He's reminded us of Tamar. He's reminded us of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He throws in Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. He's reminded us of Ruth, the Moabite widow. Neither had any claim on the promises of God. They were both outside of God's people and outside of his blessing and by his grace, they were brought in. They were brought in and they were blessed. There is no one, no one who is outside of the reach of God's blessing. There is no one who is out and belongs out. The invitation to come in is to all. Our God is also, lastly, the God of the big picture. I don't want to have a dig at it. I actually don't mind the song. It's one of those songs that gets stuck in my head. But you know the song? My Jesus, my Saviour. And can I say, he is my Jesus and he is my Saviour. But the danger of a song like that sometimes can be that he is just my Jesus. And looking at the promise to Abraham that Jesus fulfills, we realize that he is the Jesus of every single person that walks on God's earth. He is the Jesus of the nations. He works through a few to bless the many. He promised to Abraham, he blessed through Israel, ultimately fulfilling it in Christ. He blesses us so that we might become a blessing to others. God's grace was never meant to stop with us. It was never meant to be just for us. That's not how God works. God has a big picture and through his people, he is reaching out to bless others. Is your view of Jesus just my Jesus? I'm happy being a Christian. It's great. I get to be with Jesus in eternity. But don't you realize that while that is great, the great privilege we have now is to join with him to see that others 
might know what we know. As we saw last night, as we get to speak of Christ to our community, as we get to share Jesus in the conversations at work, at school, at uni, at TAFE, wherever you find yourself, down the street, over Christmas lunch, as we get to speak of the blessing that is ours in Christ and that could be theirs. In case you think I'm drawing a long bow, At the end of Matthew's gospel, what's the last command that he gives his people? Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king over the eternal kingdom. He has fulfilled 2 Samuel 7. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and share the gospel of grace with all nations, inviting them into relationship with God through Christ, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus gave us a task, a task that is in line with his task. He's fulfilled it. And we have the privilege of sharing in it. And while we might be daunted thinking, how on earth could I do that? The Great Commission comes with a great promise, doesn't it? I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is at work amongst his people. His grace was never meant to stop with us, but to flow through us to others to see others, then bless others, bless others, bringing the blessing to the nations through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So as we spend the next month or two having a look at Jesus in Matthew's gospel, I pray that we see not just the little Jesus, not just the cute Jesus of Christmas, But this is the Jesus through whom God fulfills his promises to bless the world. Let's pray. Great Father, enlarge our vision. By your spirit, open our eyes to see the greatness of what it is that you have done in Christ. Help us to see his power, his majesty, his authority, his wisdom, his love, his compassion, his mercy and his grace. Father, By your spirit, soften our hearts, open our eyes, transform us by your grace that we might might share that grace empowered by your spirit that others might be blessed as we have been blessed. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, 
and the son of Abraham. Amen.